Tuatagwan. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day, wherever you are. It's Valerie's Naturals Oracles, if I didn't say. And today, we're reading The Road Less Travelled. We're on to section four, part six, I believe. We're nearly at the end of this book. I think there's about three more days left and we're at the end of this book. And I did ask my Patreon collective, what should we be reading next? So, it's either going to be uh, Tarot Made Easy or The Reluctant Buddhist. So, it looks like those are the two books I'm going to be reading. But obviously, on hit on this platform, <laughs> I don't know. Can I read two at once? Can I read those two, two at once? I've been doing, that's what I've been doing most of the time. But anyway, I'm going to shut up and carry on with this because this... This book for me has been really deep. Oh, now I'm going to go back and listen to this all over again because it's deep. Do you know? Anyway, where we left it is Grace and Mental Illness, the myth of Orestes. Now, I have no idea what Orestes is, but we'll find out, I guess. So, a number of seemingly disparate, disparate statements have been made about the nature of mental illness and health. Sorry, health and mental illness. Neurosis is always a substitute for the legitimate suffering. Mental health is dedication to reality at all costs. And mental illness occurs when the conscious will of the individual subsequent substantially deviates from the will of God. This is a really weird view that mental health is the deviation of the will of God. That's almost like talking about the darkness. It's like they did something in the... Oh, I'm going to shut up. Anyway, which is his or own unconscious will. Let us now examine the issue of mental illness more closely and you unite these elements into a coherent whole. I can't talk today. I'm sorry, people. Into a coherent whole. <clears throat> we live our lives in a real world. To live them well, it is necessary that we come to understand the reality of the world as best we can. But such understanding does not come easily. Many aspects of the reality of the world and of our relationships to the world are painful to us. We can understand them only through effort and suffering. All of us, to a greater or lesser extent, attempt to avoid this effort and suffering. We ignore painful aspects of reality by thrusting certain unpleasant facts out of our awareness. So in other words, we attempt to defend our consciousness, our awareness against reality. We do this by a variety of means which psychiatrists call defence mechanisms. All of us employ such defence defences, thereby limiting our awareness. If in our laziness and fear of suffering we massively defend our awareness, then it will come to pass that our understanding of the world will bear little or no relation to reality. Because our actions are based on our understanding, our behaviour will then become unrealistic. When this occurs to a sufficient degree, our fellow citizens will recognise that we are out of touch with reality and will deem us mentally ill even though we ourselves are most likely convinced of our sanity. Wow. Okay, there's a side note here and it says... I recognise that this schema of mental illness is somewhat oversimplified. It does not, for instance, take into account physical or biochemical factors, 
which may be of large and even prominent significance in certain cases. I also recognise that it is possible for individuals to be so much more in touch with reality than their fellow citizens that they will be deemed insane by a sick society. Nevertheless, the schema presents here holds true in the vast majority of instances of mental health. Oh, that's a good explanation. Okay, so let's carry on. So, but long before matters have proceeded to this extreme and we have been served notice of our illness by our fellow citizens, we are served notice by our unconscious of our increasing maladjustment. Such notice is served by our unconscious thought of are unconscious through a variety of means, bad dreams, anxiety attacks, depression, and other symptoms. Although our conscious mind has denied reality, our unconscious, which is omnipresent, knows that the true score and attempts to help us out by stimulating through symptoms formation, our conscious mind to the awareness that something is wrong. In other words, the painful and unwanted symptoms of mental illness are manifestations of grace. They are the products of a powerful force originating outside of conscious which nurtures our spiritual growth. I have already pointed out in the brief discussion of depression towards the end of the first section on discipline that depressive symptoms are assigned to the suffering individual that all is not right with him or her and major adjustments need to be made. Many of the case histories I've used to demonstrate other principles can also be used to illustrate this one, that the unpleasant symptoms of mental illness serve to notify people that they are, that are taking the wrong path, that their spirits are not growing and are in grave jeopardy. But let me briefly describe one more case to significantly, <clears throat> to specifically demonstrate the role of symptoms. Betsy was a 22 year old woman lovely and in intelligent but was a demure and almost virginal quality to her who came to see me for severe anxiety attacks she was the only child of a catholic working class parent who had scrimped and saved to send her to college after one year of college however despite the fact that she had done well academically she decided to drop out and marry the boy next door a mechanic she took her job as a clerk in a supermarket all went well for two years, but then suddenly came the anxiety attacks. Out of the blue, they were totally unpredictable, except that when they did occur, she was always out of her apartment somewhere without her husband. They might happen when she was shopping, when she was at her job in the supermarket, or simply when she was walking down the street. The intensity of the panic she felt at those times were overwhelming. She would have to drop whatever she was doing and would literally run back to her apartment or else to the garage where her husband worked. Only when she was with him or at home with, would the, tannic, the panic subside. Because of the attack, she had to quit her job. <clears throat> with tranquilizers given her by her general practitioner failed to stop or even touch the intensity of her panic attacks, Betsy came to see me. I don't know what's wrong with me, she wailed. Everything in my life's wonderful. My husband is good to me. We love each other very much. I enjoyed my job. Now everything's awful. I don't know why this happens to me. I feel I may be going crazy. Please help me. Please help me so that things can be nice like they used to be. But of course, Betsy discovered in our work together that things were not so nice the way they used to be first. 
Slowly and painfully, it emerged that while her husband was good to her, various things about him irritated her. His manners were uncouth. His range of interests were narrow. All he wanted to do for entertainment was watch TV. He bored her. Then she began to recognise that working as a cashier in a supermarket also bored her. So we began to ask why she had left college for such an unstimulated existence. Well, I'm, I got more and more uncomfortable there, she acknowledged. The kids were into drugs and sex a lot. I didn't feel right about it. They questioned me, not just the boys who wanted to have sex with me, but even my girlfriends. They thought I was naive. I found I was even beginning to question myself, to question the church and even some of my parents' values. I guess I got scared. In therapy, Betsy now started to proceed with the process of questioning that she had run away from my, by run away from by leaving college. Ultimately, she returned to college. Fortunately, in this instance, her husband proved willing to grow with her and went to college himself. Their horizons rapidly broadened, and of course, her anxiety attacks ceased. There are several ways to look at this rather typical case. Betsy's anxiety attacks were clearly a form of agoraphobia, literally fear of the marketplace, but usually fear of open spaces, and for her represented a fear of freedom. She had then went, when she was outside, unhindered by her husband, free to move around and relate with others. Fear of freedom was the essence of her mental illness. Some might say that that the anxiety attacks representing her fear of freedom were her illness, but I have found it more useful and enlightening to look at things another way. For Betsy's fear of freedom long predated her anxiety attacks. It was because of this fear that she had left college and had begun the process of constricting her development. In my judgment, Betty was ill at that time. Three years before her symptoms began, yet she was not aware of her illness or the damage she was doing to herself by her self-constriction. It was her symptoms that these anxiety attacks, which she did not want and had not asked for, which she had, fe had felt had cursed her out of the blue, <clears throat> that made her finally aware of her illness and forced her to set out upon the path of self-correction and growth. I believe that this pattern holds true for most mental illness. The symptoms and the illness are not the same thing. The illness exists long before the symptoms. Rather than being the illness, the symptoms are the beginning of its cure. The fact that they are unwanted makes them all the more a phenomenon of grace, a gift of God, a message from the unconscious, if you will, to initiate self-examination and repair. That's one way of looking at it, isn't it? As is common with grace, most reject this gift and do not heed the message. They do, they do this in a variety of ways, all of which represent an attempt to avoid the responsibility for their illness. They try to ignore the symptoms by pretending that they are not really symptoms, that everyone gets these little attacks from time to time. They try to work around them by quitting jobs, stopping driving, moving to a new town, avoiding certain activities. They attempt to rid themselves of the symptoms by painkillers, by little pills. They, they, they. Sorry, by little pills they're gotten from the doctors, or by an anesthetizing themselves with alcohol and other drugs. 
Even if they do not accept the fact that they have symptoms, they will usually, in many subtle ways, blame the world outside them. Uncaring relatives, false friends, greedy corporations, a sick society, and even fate for their condition. Only these few who accept responsibility for their symptoms, who realise that their symptoms are a manifestation of a disorder in their own soul, heed the message of their unconscious and accept its grace. They accept their own inadequacy and the pain of work necessary to heal themselves. But to them, as to Betty and all the others willing to face the pain of psychotherapy, comes great reward. It was of them that Christ spoke in the first of the beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there is a side note here again. And it says Matthew 5 verses 3. There are many different versions of this myth with substantial differences between them. No one version is the correct one. The version given here is mostly condensed from Edith Hamilton's Mythology New York Mentor book. I was led to this myth through Rollo's May use of it in the book Love and Will and that of T.S. Eliot's in his play The Family Reunion. Interesting. So I'll read that again. But to them, as to Betty and all others, willing to face the pain of psychotherapy comes great reward. It was of them that Christ spoke in the first of the beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I am saying here is of the relationship between grace and mental illness is beautifully embodied in the, in the great Greek myth of Orestes and the Furies. Orestes was a grandson of Artreus, a man who had viciously attempted to prove himself more powerful than the gods. Because of his crime against them, the gods punished Artreus by placing a curse upon all his descendants. As part of the enactment of this curse upon the house of Artreus, Orestes' mother, some of these names, these Greek names, Clytemnesta, I'll spell it for you, C-L-Y-T, T-E-M-N-E-S-T-R-A murdered her father and her husband, Agamemnon. This crime, in turn, brought down the curse upon Orestes' head because, by the Greek code of honour, a child was obligated, above all else, to slay his father's murderer. Yet the greatest sin a Greek could commit was the sin of matricide. M-A-T-R-I-C-I-D-E Orestes agonised over his dilemma. Finally, he did what he seemingly had to do and killed his mother. For this sin, the gods then punished Orestes by visiting upon him the Furies, three ghastly harpies who could be seen and heard only by him and who tormented him night and day with their crackling criticism and frightening appearance. <laughs> pursued whatever he went by the Furies, pursued whatever he went by the Furies, Orestes wandered around the land seeking to atone for his crime. After many years of lonely reflection and self-obligation, Orestes requested the gods to relieve him of the curse of the house of Atreus and its visitation upon him through the furies, stating his belief that he had succeeded in atoning for the murder of his mother. A trial was heard by, held by the gods. Speaking Orestes' defence, Apollo argued that he had engineered the whole situation that had placed Orestes in the position in which he had no choice but to kill his mother, and therefore Orestes really could not be held responsible. 
At this point, Orestes jumped up and contradicted his own defender, stating, It was I, not Apollo, that murdered my mother. The gods were amazed. Never before had a member of the house of Atreus assumed such total responsibility for himself and not blame the gods. Eventually, the gods decided the trial in Orestes' favour and not only relieved him of the curse upon the house of Atreus, but also transformed the Furies into the Eumenides, loving spirits who thought that wise counsel enabled Orestes to obtain continued good fortune. The meaning of this myth is not obscure. The Inumendes, or benevolent one, benevolent one, are also referred to as the bearers of grace. The hulinicellatory furies, who could be perceived only by Orestes, represented his symptoms, the private hell of mental illness. The transformation of the furies into the Emonides is the transformation of mental illness into a good fortune of which we have been speaking. This transformation occurred by virtue of the fact that Orestes was willing to accept responsibility for his mental illness. While he ultimately sought to be relieved of them, he did not see the Furies as an unjust punishment or perceive himself to be a victim of the society of anything else. Being an inevitable result of the original curse upon the house of Atreus, the Furies also symbolise the fact that mental illness is a family affair, created in one, one by one's parents and grandparents that the sins of the father are visited upon the children. But Orestes did not blame his family, his parents or his grandfather, as he well might have. Nor did he blame the gods or fate. Instead, he accepted his condition as one of his own making and undertook the effort to heal it. It was a lengthy process, just as most therapy tends to be lengthy. But as a result, he was healed. And through this healing process of his own effort, the very things that had once cursed his agony became the same thing that brought him wisdom. Okay, all experienced psychotherapists have seen this myth acted out in their own practice and had actually witnessed the transformation of the Furies into the Emudides within the mind and lives of their more successful patients. It is not an easy transformation. As soon as they realise that they will ultimately be required by the process of the psychotherapy to assume total responsibility for their condition and its cure, most patients, no matter how eager for the therapy they initially appear to be, will drop out. They choose rather to be sick and have the gods to blame them to be well with no one to blame ever again. Or the majority or the minority who stay in therapy most must still be taught to assume total responsibility for themselves as part of their healing. This teaching training might be a more accurate word is a painstaking affair as the therapist methodically confronts patients with their avoidance of responsibility again and again and again session after session month after month and often year after year frequently like stubborn children they will kick and scream all the way as they as they are led to the notion of total responsibility for themselves. Eventually, however, they arrive. It is only the rare patient who enters therapy with a willingness to assume total responsibility from the beginning. 
Therapy in such cases, while it still may require a year or two, is relatively brief, relatively smooth and relatively a very pleasant process of both patient and therapist. In any case, whether relatively easy or difficult and prolonged, the transformation of the furies into the immunites does occur. Those who have faced their mental illness accept total responsibility for and make the necessary changes in themselves to overcome it, find themselves not only cured and free from the curses of their childhood and ancestry, but also find themselves living in a new and different world. What they once perceived as problems, they now perceive as opportunities. What was once loathsome barriers are now welcome challenges. Thoughts previously unwanted become helpful insights. Feelings previously disowned become sources of energy and guidance. Occurrences that once seemed to be burdens now seem to be gifts, including the very symptoms from which they were recovered. My depression and my anxiety attacks were the best things that ever happened to me, they would routinely say at the termination of a successful therapy. Even if they emerged from therapy were a belief in God, such successful patients still generally do with a very deal with a very real sense that they have been touched by grace. Or as I call it, touched by divine. <laughs> anyway, I'm leaving it there, people, till tomorrow. We got two days left. That's the countdown. See you tomorrow. <laughs>